Today is all Agadot, uh, one famous story about Rabbi Akiva and a few other fascinating stories. We just saw a story about Rabbi Yehuda, who lived a very modest, impoverished lifestyle, even though he was literally sitting on a pot of gold. And so now we're going to see Rabbi Akiva also, who, and his wife, who suffered through poverty, but eventually became rich. Rabbi Akiva, it kadashht le batra debar kalba sabua. Rabbi Akiva um, did kiddushin, betrothed to the daughter of Kalba Sabua. He was one of the wealthiest men in Israel. He was called that, according to the Talmud Bavli, because Kalba is a dog, and someone who came to his house hungry as a dog, he would feed him and he would leave. Sabua satisfied. Uh, that's uh, probably a midrash on his name. The Talmud Yerushalmi explains that he was probably from the, traced himself to the tribe of Caleb ben Yefune. That's why it was called Kalba. Anyway, Shama Kalba Sabua Adra Hana'a Mikol Kalba Sabua heard uh, that his daughter had eloped to this guy and he disinherited her from all of his property. He didn't feel like uh, this uh, this boy was worthy of his rich family, a poor impoverished boy. We already saw a slightly different version of this story in Masechet Ketubot, where it says that he is the shepherd. And uh, there it actually says that she proposes to him and says, uh, "If I, I will, I will agree to marry you if you go and study." Um, here it's missing those details. Uh, and then, even though the father disinherited her, she did not listen to the father, but rather went ahead and married Rabbi Akiva. During the winter, they would sleep in a storehouse of straw. They were very poor, so they couldn't. Uh, they they didn't um, own uh, a house or a home, and so they would just go, go and lie down in uh, some storehouse. And Akiva would pick out the straw from her hair. A nice uh, little romantic scene here. And he said, "If I had, if I could afford it, I would put on your head a Jerusalem of gold." This is where it comes from. Yerushalayim shel zahav. But here in the Aramaic, de dahava. This means a crown that is in the shape of the city of. Yerushalayim. These were very popular back then, uh, these uh, decorative ornamental crowns that would be the, in the shape of a city. Um, here is one uh, depicting Taiki, the uh, goddess of fortune, also known as Fortuna, as the, the Roman goddess, uh, god, uh, the goddess of luck. And uh, is, she is wearing a, a, a city of gold. Uh, as, uh, on a, a crown of that's in the shape of a city. Uh, so that's what he means by this. As I would buy you this very, very expensive uh, crown for your head if I, if I could afford it. So at that point, you know, you see that they're feeling bad that they're so impoverished. And so to help out, Eliyahu comes dressed as a person and knocks on the door of the barn. And he says, please, can you give me a little straw? Because my wife gave birth and I don't even have anything that she could lie down on. Just the raw ground, a little straw would be amazing. 
Amar la Rabbi Akiva le intete chazik abrada filuti bna la itle. I presume they gave them some straw, and then Rabbi Akiva said, told his wife, "Look at this guy. He doesn't even have straw. Right? We should feel so lucky that at least we have straw. Right? In other words, um, poverty is always." subjective and so they although they're impoverished compared to her rich father and probably compared to most people but there's still someone even poorer that needs their that needs their straw and so i guess that made them feel a little better she said i don't want you to go to work I'm okay being poor. I want you to go and study Torah in the house of the of the teacher, in the house of the rabbi. And so he did. Right. So in this story, she uh, asks him. She requests that he go study Torah after they're married, whereas in the one in Ketubot, it's a, it's before they're married as a condition. So he goes and studies for twelve years in the um, uh, with Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua. Uh, Rabbi Akiva is a third generation Tana, and these are uh, second generation Tanaim. After 12 years, so now time to come home. And so he's, uh, he's uh, coming home and he's passing by his house. He hears, he overhears from inside the house a certain wicked person t- speaking to his wife. And the wicked person is saying, Shapira bedle lich abuch. The wicked person said, you know what, your father did well disinheriting you. He was right to do that for two reasons. Number one, that he's not your type. He's not similar to you. You're high class. He's low class. And uh, you're not, you're not, you're, he, he was not worthy of you. And, and second of all, look how he treats you. He leaves you like a widow. Even while he's alive, right? You're like uh, Aguna. You have no husband and you can't go marry anybody else either. And you're just sitting here impoverished, right? What kind of husband is this? And she wants to counter this Rasha and express how this was her will. She's totally willing to sacrifice and she wants actually him to go. So she doubles down and says, if he would listen to me, then he would go and study for yet another 12 years. All right, I don't know if she was saying this just to push away this rasha, um, but presumably she wouldn't say it if she didn't mean it. And Arabi uh, Akiba overheard her saying this. Oh, look, I have permission to go study more. You know what? I'm going to go back and study. Everybody has a question. Why didn't he at least come in and say hello? Right? Spend a, spend a few days at home in between. It sounds like he doesn't. he just turns right around and doesn't even knock on the door. Um, uh, maybe because he wants to have this continuity, right? Once you come home and uh, get comfortable there, then it'll be harder to go back and his mind will always be kind of thinking about uh, uh, the comforts of home. And so he goes back to have now continuous 24 years of study. Hadar Azal have tarte sereshena acharanayatai. So it's there for another 12 years. When he comes back, um, now he's accompanied with 24,000 pairs of students. So a thousand 
pairs of students for every year that he was away. Um, interesting that it's pairs, which um, reflects on the style of learning and chevruta that was around even then, and that was significant. Um, it doesn't say that he came back with any students uh, in, on the first time that he came uh, that here, and the first time here, um, uh, per, and at least in this version of the story. Other versions of the story, he does, he does come back with students. Um, maybe uh, in this version of the story, the first 12 years is for himself, for him to learn everything on his uh, on his own and then the next 12 years is his becoming a teacher and gathering this large following and so now he's coming home now he's a renowned uh, sage and everybody in the town's coming to greet him and she also she got up to go and greet um, her husband and the, this the same Rasha still torturing her says and where do you think you're going Right, look at you. You look uh, disheveled. Uh, you have no you, uh, clothes are in tatters. You're going to go and greet this uh, great sage looking like that. She quotes a pasuk that a righteous man knows the life of his animal. So this is kind of surprising. She's comparing herself to an animal. Uh, the point is that even if I be disheveled and look like an animal, he would know that she, uh, I, I, I am uh, that I am his, and uh, he will recognize me. And uh, so she was uh, very, uh, she was uh, uh, subservient to him and wanted and supported him and actually encouraged him to go and do everything. He will recognize my self-sacrifice and uh, know who I am. It doesn't matter how I look, right? He's, uh, uh, she'll recognize me no matter what, and that turns out to be true. Atat. So she came to be seen, but to present herself to be seen by him. And he had uh, his students there, his bodyguards, are pushing her away, right? They don't know her. They think she's just some, uh, some uh, uh, a beggar who's coming to bother him. And so they're, they're pushing her away. Famous words. Rebekah says, leave her. Because all of my Torah and all of your Torah, all these 24,000 students, all of our Torah, Shela belongs to her. She is the one that's responsible uh, for making this happen. So, therefore, let her through. Shama kalba sabua. shil al And now kalba sabua heard that his son-in-law, that now became uh, a famous scholar, well-regarded, and he undid his vow. Um, he asked for it to be undone, and it was dissolved, right? Hey, would, you have, would you have made this vow knowing that your son-in-law would be like this? He says no. In the other version in Ketubot, he didn't recognize that this great sage coming was in fact the son-in-law. And he, co- he goes to the Be'akiva and says, I want to undo my vow because I feel bad that my daughter is so poor. And he and the Rabbi Akiva says, had you known that he would be a Tamil Chacham, would you do it? He says, no, I wouldn't do it, even if he knew one halacha. And he undoes it and reveals that, oh, I am he. Okay, in this version, is just more straightforward, is lacking that, that drama. It sounds like from, in this, in this version, that Kalzabah knew that it was Rabbi Akiva. And nevertheless, he says, oh, well, now I see I was wrong. And uh, and uh, I would not have made this vow had I known this. And so they, he was able to um, dissolve the vow. And that way he was able to give 
his property over to his daughter and to his son-in-law. All right, so that's the story. And now we're going to um, uh, explain how Rabbi Akiba became rich. It wasn't just from uh, tuition from these students, but it was not, not, it was not from tuition. We saw before, you're not supposed to get paid for teaching uh, Torah. But rather from this, the following. Rabbi Akiba became rich from six different sources. Number one, after he dissolved the vow, he was able to give them property. Uh, from a certain ship. We're going to see down here, this is probably a ship of Ishmaelites. And uh, on the ships back then, they would put a, uh, a, a ram uh, or a sheep as decoration. If it was a warship, it would be some kind of actual strong item that they could use to ram other boats. Uh, otherwise, it was made for decoration. And so on ships, they would have this uh, type of ram. And one time, there was some sailors who forgot their ram on the seashore. They just they left it there by mistake. And uh, Rabbi Akiba happened to stop by and he saw uh, this ram and he found that there was money inside. They were hiding their money inside that ram's head um, at, the, uh, uh, at, the, um, at the front of the ship. And they left this whole ram with money in it and it was lost property. I guess they were sailed and were long gone. There was no way to return it. And so he, he, um, he uh, stumbled on uh, a treasure trove and he became rich from that. The third one, min This is from a log that was full of wood. How did that happen? He gave four dinars to sailors as an investment. He says, you're going on a trip. Here's four dinars. Go buy something exotic in wherever you're going and then bring it back. That's something that will be worth more money here, right? And as an investment. He said, bring me something. But they went and they came back and they only the only thing they found was a log on the seashore. So they brought it to him and said, sorry, all we could find is a log. Madana, right? Our master, take this. Um, uh, at least for now, and uh, you know, this is the best that we could do to bring you this, this log. So Rabbi Akiba took the log home, was looking into it, and found that it was full of dinar. What happened is that there there was a ship that sunk, and the merchandise, meaning the money that they used to, uh, that they uh, got from selling the merchandise, they stored in this log. But then the ship sank, and this is a lost uh, lost treasure that happened to be in the log. The people that saw that, the, the sailors didn't realize it. And so this is a found treasure. Um, those uh, those uh, sailors are gone, and so he was able to keep it. And so that's the third way. Now this demin to see this rukita from these Ishmaelites. This is probably the same as the story above with the ram, um, because otherwise there'll be seven items, and there's no explanation of this one. And so the next one is umin matronita. 
from an aristocratic Roman woman. Uh, here is, this story is not told here, but the explanation is that he borrowed money from this woman and uh, he said, God will be my guarantor. Don't worry about it, right? Even if I don't pay, God will pay you back. Time came time to pay back the loan and the, there was some princess who became insane and threw her jewelry into the sea. And so happens that this woman, this aristocratic woman, found that purse of jewelry. And so she told Rabbi Akiba, you know what? Your debt has already been paid by your guarantor. Uh, the, the aristocratic woman saw it as a miracle that God gave her, uh, sent her this jewelry as payment for Rabbi Akiba's loan. And therefore, Rabbi Akiba did not have to repay the loan. It was forgiven. And Rabbi Akiba kept the money. And that's the next way that he got rich. You see that these all are all uh, miraculous ways. And the last two are from uh, surprising enemies who actually uh, turned out to be friends. So the wife of Turnus Rufus. Now Turnus Rufus, Rufus, Turnus actually comes from t uh, uh, tyranny, right? He a tyrant. He was actually a tyrant. He was the Roman governor of Judea during the Bar Kokhba revolt. In other words, this Tunas Rufus is the one who uh, was responsible for all those terrible decrees and the one who was responsible for killing and torturing Rabbi Akiva himself. Nevertheless, his wife was uh, uh, like Jews and like Rabbi Akiva, and she uh, converted, and according to this story, and gave her money to Rabbi Akiva. Oh, and the last one is this Kitia Bar Shalom, some prominent Roman um, who defended the Jews and tried to save them. Uh, not successful, but because he did like the Jews and he was executed because he tried to help the Jews. Uh, but he left his fortune to Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues Rabbi Akiva received half of it in this story. Uh, these, the point of these couple of stories is that even though um, many Romans were uh, terrible to the Jews and caused the Bar Kokhba revolt and killed Rabbi Akiva and so many terrible things, there were also some Romans I recognized that uh, recognized that the Jews were good, and recognized Rabbi Akiva was a great sage and did not deserve this, and um, uh, they couldn't save him. But the least they could do is uh, show their support financially, and Rabbi Akiva was able to get rich from them. All right, that's the end of the story of Rabbi Akiva, and now a few more stories. Rav Gamda Yahiv so, uh, once we talked about investing with sailors, Rav Gamda also, he invested for zoos, uh, and he gave it to some sailors. He says, go find me something valuable. They went and their trip, but they did not find anything. So they brought a monkey. They went to uh, wherever they went, India or something, and they found a monkey there. But turns out this, this monkey was like Curious George, right? He went, he got into some trouble and he uh, went into a hole. He's going and hiding in, in the hole and, he, and now they had to get him out. So the people had to go and dig, dig out the hole in order to get the monkey out. And was, while they're digging, the, the, digging out the hole, they found that the monkey was crouching over some pearls and they brought the pearls to Rav Gamda, meaning, right, this is, uh, 
because we were looking for this monkey, uh, monkey led us to the pearls, and so miraculously, um, his uh, his uh, investment turned out to be very good, even though the monkey itself was not worth so much, it led to a much bigger find. So a kind of similar story. Okay, so now more um, back to the uh, theme that we saw above that Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Akiva, when they were learning Torah, they were impoverished. So now uh, another great sage who um, is, uh, has a different deficiency that he was ugly. So the daughter of the emperor went to the Biyoshua ben Hananya and said, Torah mefoada, the magnificent Torah, is in such an ugly vessel, meaning you, you're a great sage, you know so much Torah, but how come you're so ugly? All right. So instead of Yoshua, instead of getting insulted and uh, walking away, he wanted to teach her an important lesson. And so he does it with something that she can understand. And she, she says, I'm going to give you an answer. You could learn it from your own household, right? You're the daughter of the emperor. So let's see. In, in, your, in your home, in the emperor's home, where do you store your wine? Oh, we put it in earthenware. That's the cheapest type of vessel that you can possibly think of, right? We store our fine wine in cheap earthenware vessels. So Rabbi Yoshua said, everybody, all the poor people everywhere in the world uh, stores their wine in earthenware vessels. And you also, you're the same as everybody else. You should put your fine wine in vessels of silver and gold. Wouldn't that be more appropriate? He says, yeah, you're right, right? You see, this is, uh, follows her own opinion that something glorious should be stored in something that looks beautiful. So she did. She now put all the wine in gold and silver and gold vessels. Usri, but it's spoiled. No good. So she comes back to him and says, oh, we're all spoiled. Well, yeah, that's why, right? These, these metals um, are not good for the, uh, the taste of wine. They can even cause health risk. Um, to store things in these um, in in the gold and silver, so she realized her mistake, and um, and, uh, and that uh, wine has to be stored in something cheap. That's what keeps the wine the best. And so now we explain to her the nimshal. Right? You see, the Torah is also the same way. Torah is best learned and kept and transmitted by people who are not necessarily so good-looking. That way they can concentrate on their minds, on their spirit, on their studies, and they don't have to think about how they dress and how they look. And so and then we ask, or she asks, hold on, but there are also good-looking sages, right? Not all, not all sages are ugly, and, but they're also knowledgeable. And his answer was, if they were ugly, they would even be more learned, right? The fact that, they're, that, they're, that they look nice is actually a hindrance, is a handicap to them. Um, because, you know, then, look, people uh, tend to, to uh, be more friendly with people that look good and invite them to more weddings and parties and want to hang out with them, and so they have to spend time uh, socializing and, uh, and uh, shopping and looking good, and that actually takes away from their Torah. So they're so great, they can even learn Torah and do that, but if they were ugly, they would be even more learned. All right, great lesson.
Ahi, Now, a fun story of a woman who came before Rav Yehuda in the Harda'a for judgment, and she was found guilty. Uh, whatever it is, we don't know what the case was. And she asked Rav Yehuda, Rav Yehuda your, uh, your teacher, Shemuel, would he have judged in the same manner, right, and found me guilty? So he, says, what, you know him? Like, why are you asking about my teacher, Shemuel? Yes, I do know him, right? And I, I think he would have been I, more lenient. He would have taken my side. And has, she wants to prove that she knows him, so she describes what he looked like. Yeah, he was short, and pot-bellied, uh, fat, and he was dark, and he had big teeth, right? He wasn't, he wasn't very handsome. What are you coming here to disparage him, to make fun of uh, my teacher? That's why you're bringing him up? Right? What kind of person are you? May this woman be excommunicated. And she blew up and died for as a punishment for saying that. Uh, so, okay, didn't end up as such a funny story. Um, but um, the point is, this is uh, follows the one before, uh, saying that great uh, greatness, um, great, just like great wine, you put in simple, ugly vessels, so too Torah is best kept in, in sages who are not so handsome, and so Shemuel is a good example of that. All right, Mutar Bebesa, Turmita. All right, now we're going all the way back to the Mishnah, that if someone says a tavshil, a cooked item, is prohibited to me, then that refers to uh, loose, uh, liquidy items that you eat with bread. Uh, but if it's something hard, then that's not called tafshil. Tafshil means the thing that they typically eat with bread, um, but not a standalone dish. And so this now is going to include this special type of egg that's prepared in a certain way that is not called tafshil. You know, usually eggs, if it's uh, like shakshuka eggs um, and it's loose, so you'd eat, eat that with bread. But this one is standalone. Okay, now what is this? My besa turmita amas Shemuel. We just talked about Shemuel, so now we're going to quote some of his Torah. Remember, Shemuel was also a doctor. So we're going to get some medical advice too. Abda David la shavi alfa dinare umayye la alfa zimne b'maya chamimeh alfa zimne b'maya kerire ad demit zutra ki hechi de belaita. He says, "Listen, this is very hard to make this type of egg. If you have a servant who knows how to make this type of turmita egg, you she that the servant is worth a thousand dinar, right? Because you can't find." Can't find help. Can't find anyone who knows how to make it. The way to make it is that you have to uh, put it for 1,000 times the egg in cold water, and a th- in hot water, and 1,000 times in cold water. You keep putting it back and forth, back and forth, uh, I guess pretty quickly, um, until it, uh, it shrinks, it shrivels up, and it's so small that you could swallow the egg whole. And now this is good, I don't know if necessarily for the taste, um, but it's good for medicinal purposes. If someone has some kind of lesion in his intestinal tract, so then uh, if you eat this egg, that part of that lesion will stick 
to the egg. V'echad nafka, and then when it comes out the other end, v'atya yada asya mai sama mitba'ele u'bemai mitaseh. Then the doctor can examine it uh, when it comes out and see what exactly the diagnosis is, what was the problem, and then he'll know what medicine to prescribe so that it can be healed. So in other words, this type of egg was the early version of an endoscopy. Shemuel hava badik nafshe bekulcha ad mi satirin enashe bete ale saarehon. Shemuel, I guess himself, maybe didn't have this egg. Uh, he would use a cabbage stalk that he would swallow whole um, and uh, then it would go through his digestive system and he used that to check, uh, check himself. And um, this was very difficult for the body that he, uh, he looked so faint that his, his family members would be tearing their hair out, right? Mistarin, uh, uh, taking out the people of his home, their hair, because they thought he was dying from the, the pain of, of this procedure. Uh, but this was also kind of like a, a colonoscopy, uh, cleaning out his system, and uh, apparently even got a little sample, a biopsy uh, from, of, the, uh, of the problem uh, that came out the other side that you can use to diagnose the problem. All right, amazing. Tenanatam. Now we have a Mishnah in Masechet Ma'asrot that says, Haya oseh bech lo pasin lo yochal bibnot sheva. Bibnot sheva lo yochal bech lo pasin. Maike lo pasin mina detene da'abdin minehon lipedeh. Since we were talking about different foods and uh, different ways that they are prepared, so now a, cu- uh, a couple of halachot that relate to such a thing, that there's a halacha, it's in the Torah, that says if there's a worker who's working in a field, the worker has a right to eat some of the produce that he is himself picking from the field. It's not nice that the person should have all these things. Like if you're working in Dunkin' Donuts, then you should be able to eat a few donuts if you want. It's kind of dangerous to do that, but the point is it's not nice to have a worker uh, dealing with all this food and then uh, um, uh, not let him have some. However, there is a limitation, which is even if you have different workers who are picking different types of figs, they can only eat the fig that they are um, are picking. And so if they're working with klopasin figs, then they can't go and eat some binocheva figs. And the other way around also, whichever one is better and uh, more expensive or less expensive, doesn't matter. If they're going and, and picking binocheva pigs, they can't go and eat the klopasin pigs, figs. And what are klopasin figs? Uh, they are a type of uh, fig that you make uh, lipde. Uh, some kind of compote, some dessert, and that's how you make it from those figs. There was a certain guy who uh, gave his slave to his friend so that the friend could teach him how to prepare a thousand different varieties of compote from figs. So his friend knew a thousand recipes, and this guy... Uh, sent his slave there to go and learn it. Probably he paid his friend uh, so that his, uh, he, his, his slave could learn it. And once then, then the slave would come back, and that way the slave would know all these 1,000 recipes. Uh, this, you see, is, uh, uh, follows up with what we said before, that the, uh, this special type of egg, right, if you have a servant that knows how to make it, right, it's somebody who's worth 1,000 uh, dinar. 
and so um, uh, and uh, also you have to do something a thousand times. So this is a, a key number that's uh, going through all these um, stories. So anyway, he wants his his uh, chef slave to be able to know all one thousand recipes. But what happened is he went to the friend, and the friend taught him only eight hundred recipes for this uh, this uh, dessert. So the friend who sent the slave uh, sued him, brought him to court of to the court of Rabbi, and saying, "I hired him to teach one thousand recipes, and I only have eight hundred recipes." Okay, it's kind of funny. And so to be is we don't doesn't say what he ruled on in this case, but he's just remarking about how uh, um, uh, uh, how luxurious they are living and uh, saying our forefathers said we forgot good uh, that we after the one uh, during the time of the Beit Hamikdash things were so good they had great luxury, but after during the after the destruction during the exile. They forgot all that luxurious living that was totally lost. They forgot how good it was. But at least in their time, they had once known it, but they forgot it. Us, in our time, we never even saw such luxury. Um, that's, uh, it doesn't even exist anymore. But here, now he sees in front of him this uh, kind of getting back to better times that uh, there are a thousand uh, recipes and a person will be so upset that he's missing 200 of the thousand recipes and uh, upset enough that he's going to bring his friend to court. Um, and so I think this is uh, yet um, another example following through on the theme that uh, those who devote themselves to Torah uh, can uh, uh, don't have to worry about their their finances like Rabbi Akiva who found uh, money miraculously so that he could um, live well but but this the devotion and not caring about it well that's the irony irony of it right like Rabbi Yehuda in the previous part of the story that he actually doesn't want the money doesn't need the money so it's kind of the the, the two, two sides of having money on the one hand better to be ugly better to not have material right so you can focus on uh, focus on spiritual uh, and intellectual endeavors. Now, all these things are handicaps and prevent one from doing so. And so yeah, that, that is seen from all the hardship that the rabbis would go through and uh, in order to study Torah without any material things. On the other hand, the, 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 the reward is also there that as, um, as a reward for not caring about money, um, these uh, sages do find a way, one way or another, to miraculously find wealth. Baruch Adonai Leodam, Amen ve Amen.